office who engaged in an insurrection after previously promising to support the Constitution. The ruling, however, was immediately put on hold, pending an expected appeal to the state's highest court. In weather today, it is 41 degrees and sunny. Temperatures are forecast to drop into the 20s overnight and rise into the 50s tomorrow afternoon. For WPFW News in Washington, I'm Sue Goodwin. Welcome to the Labor Heritage Power Hour, a weekly radio show celebrating the cultural heritage of the American worker. We're a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock. And I'm Elise Bryant. On today's show... I think there's an argument to be made that over the past couple of years, there has been a lot of labor unrest. And we have seen a lot of stories about... To put it mildly, poor rich people whose lives are hard. Oh, so sad. Actor and fellow labor podcaster Harold Phillips joins us for his annual labor review of the Screen Actors Guild Awards. We wrote our song, Boss Called a Meeting, in response to the carrier plant closing in Indianapolis as a result of NAFTA. Nashville-based folk artists Michael and Nell with the story behind their song, Boss called a meeting. So Ben Fletcher is uh, the most important African-American who was ever in the IWW and one of the most important black labor leaders and really black leftists in American history. But he's almost entirely unknown, even among those who know a lot about the history of American labor, the history of American radicalism. From the Working Class History podcast on this last day, in fact, this extra leap year day of Black History Month, who was Ben Fletcher and why have you never heard of him before? And in our final segment on labor history in two... The year was 1937. That was the day with whistles blowing, the call to strike could be heard through the aisles of Woolworth in downtown Detroit. That's all coming up on today's show. But first, a quick thank you to everyone who gave so generously during our recent winter pledge drive. Yes, you really made a difference, folks. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. This institution has a reputation based on the world-class scientists, not the theories of a pretty lab tech. We have rules. You're firing me. That's from Apple TV's Lessons in Chemistry, one of the few laborific shows nominated for a SAG Award this year. The awards were held last Sunday, and we checked in with actor and fellow labor podcaster Harold Phillips earlier this week for his annual report. The SAG Awards is SAG-AFTRA, my union's annual awards show, and it is the only internationally televised union awards show. This is a show where union members honor the work of other union members. And it was broadcast around the world on Netflix this past Saturday, February 24th. Hey, Harold, what are your picks for the labor-related nominees and winners? You know, we've been doing this for a few years, and uh, there have been some good working-class TV shows and movies that have been nominated for the SAG Awards. Gotta say, this wasn't really a year for that. Um, a lot of the stuff that was nominated wasn't really focused on working class issues, working class stories. Uh, we're talking about things like Succession, The Gilded Age, Fla Killers of the Flower Moon, which, you know, yes, it's a tragic story, but... It's rich people stealing the money of other rich people. It's it's not exactly what you'd call a working class story. So 
Uh, there wasn't a lot. There wasn't a lot. You could say, I think, that Ted Lasso has some working class notes to it. I mean, everybody thinks about these rich football stars. Uh, sorry, Americans. Soccer stars. And how they drive around in fancy cars and live in mansions. Ted Lasso kind of turns that on its head and talks about how they do actually work for a living and they do have real problems. So, yeah, there's there's an argument there. You could say that the Apple TV show Lessons in Chemistry talks a little bit about working class issues. Now, Lessons in Chemistry is about a woman in the 1950s who is a chemist. She has a master's degree in chemistry. But because it's the 1950s, the only job she can get is as a lab tech in a lab. And she continues to do her own research. Then circumstances happen and she's fired. She ends up being the host of a popular cooking show and applies her scientific knowledge to the process of cooking. Politics don't belong in the kitchen. A man wants his wife to make him a drink after a long day at work. Why do you assume that his day was longer than hers? Why don't you make the drink? Great show. Absolutely. Arguably something of a working class story. But a lot of the stuff that was nominated wasn't really focused on the working class. Um, there is one other movie which I really have to mention. And that's something that I think you folks have covered here on the show before. That's Rustin, the story of Bayard Rustin and how he was involved. <laughs> he was basically the organization of the March on Washington for jobs and civil rights. A demonstration made up of angelic troublemakers such as yourselves. Make sure you are there. On August 28th, black, white, Young, old, rich, working class, poor, will descend on Washington, D.C. Fantastic movie. Absolutely a movie about an organizer and all the work that working class people have to put into an event like that. That, that I think, would definitely fit into the working class category. Not necessarily the labor category, though he couldn't have done it without those unions, right? Right. Okay. And and speaking of unions, what's interesting is that there were so many strikes last year, including the Hollywood strikes. How did that not happen to creep into what was being um, produced? Yeah, it's an interesting thing about the entertainment industry. There's a lag, right? So you'll remember that SAG-AFTRA and the writers went on strike towards the middle of last year. And at that point, everybody was worried that the media was going to dry up, that there'd be nothing to watch. But of course, there was for a few months because they went through that supply that they had in the pipeline. Then everything shut down. Then reality TV and Korean dramas were pretty much all you could watch. Now things have started up again. But in the intervening time, there wasn't a lot being made. And so what we're really seeing during these awards shows are the stuff that was made pre-strike. It'll be really interesting to see what kind of stories are going to show up next year at the SAG Awards, at the Emmys, at the Oscars. And I guess that was my thought, Harold. I mean, two things. First of all, I, I don't give them so much of a pass because there were a lot of strikes the year before as well. I mean, last year obviously was a big year, but the last few years have been have been a lot of labor unrest, a lot of strikes, a lot of organizing. So I, I, I was a little surprised not to see more stuff in that pipeline, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give a, a sort of a half pass on that. But I do remember, and I remember you talking about this and, and reading some stuff about this, you know, you had a lot of folks, you know, your colleagues, uh, who, you know, when they weren't out picketing or, you know, in negotiating meetings, uh, were, were doing projects. Um, and I'm just wondering if you're hearing anything or what your thoughts are on, on what we might be seeing coming down the road. Because I'm also wondering, you know, you're, you're very proud of your union. You're a very engaged union member, but I'm sure that there are plenty of folks that are, are not, that became sort of, radicalized or unionized uh, during the strike. So just wanted to get your thoughts on all of that. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Chris, because my union, SAG-AFTRA, is a lot like any other union. You have a certain percentage who are really engaged, and you have a percentage who are members of the union by dint of doing the work, but they don't necessarily think about it so much until they get that residual check in the mail or, uh, you know, the dues bill or that sort of thing. I think it's important to remember, though, that a lot of the SAG-AFTRA members involved in these projects are the workers on the assembly line. They're not the ones who are making the decisions about the products that the company is making. The people making the, the decisions about the products the company is making are the same kind of people who would be making the decisions at Ford or Amazon. They're people who are in the C-suite, who are the executives. I think there's an argument to be made that over the past couple of years, there has been a lot of labor unrest. And we have seen a lot of stories about, to put it mildly, poor rich people whose lives are hard. Oh, so sad. And I'm not going to suggest that the people who are making the decisions on what to green light want to try and point people's attention over to how difficult the life of billionaires are. But this is a, this is a trend that we've actually seen over the past few years. This notion of charismatic billionaires who are going to sweep in and save us and, uh, their flawed anti-heroes and that sort of thing. But we are living in the moment. And this moment is one of workers standing together. What's interesting to me is to see what the audience is going to migrate to. Because at the end of the day, that's what matters. That's what makes a difference. If people don't buy the ticket or watch the Netflix stream or tune in to uh, uh, TV, I think they call it, where like it, it comes <laughs> oh, oh, over he the did. air. <laughs> then those shows aren't going to continue. If people do migrate to stories about working class people standing together and dealing with the stuff that we all deal with on a daily basis, we're going to see more stories like that. Well, your lips to uh, whoever makes the, the, uh, the decisions ears, Harold Phillips. Thanks so much for giving us your insights. Always here for you. We are committed to the cause of altering the trajectory of this country towards freedom. They either believe in freedom and justice for all. Or they do not. This is Elise Bryant from the Labor Heritage Power Hour. We're proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. With more than 200 labor radio shows and podcasts from across the country and around the world. The Labor Radio Podcast Network, where working people speak. Find us at laborradionetwork.org. Called the meeting, so we had to go. Said they're moving the plant to Mexico. We all heard the rumors, now we know they're moving the plant to Mexico. All I've ever known is the blue color. Hello, we are Michael and Nell, Nashville based folk artists. We wrote our song, Boss Called a Meeting, in response to the carrier plant closing in Indianapolis as a result of NAFTA. Hi, this is Nell. The deal Trump made with Carrier in 2016 provided the company with $7 million in state tax credits and training grants. In exchange, Carrier agreed to retain about 1,100 jobs, although 300 of those were never slated for offshoring. According to a 2020 article in the Indianapolis Star, about 800 workers whose jobs the company had planned to eliminate were still working there. 
In fact, the factory was so busy that most of the 600 people who were laid off had an opportunity to join the company again. But that led to another problem. Conditions inside the plant had become nearly intolerable. The factory had four production lines running day and night, and assembly workers were required to work full shifts seven days a week, some without a day off in more than a month. The relentless production schedule left them vulnerable to the coronavirus. The non-stop pace left little time for deep cleaning, and the company has not been open about how many cases of deaths had occurred at the plant. On the campaign trail in 2016, Trump repeatedly said his policies would prevent U.S. companies from shutting down plants and moving production to less expensive countries. He repeated that pledge during the carrier announcement. He said, these companies aren't going to be leaving anymore. However, Trump did not stop offshoring jobs. According to a report by Public Citizen, Trump awarded more than $425 billion in federal contracts to corporations listed among those responsible for offshoring 200,000 American jobs during his presidency. Eight out of the top 10 firms receiving government contracts during his presidency have been government certified as having offshored jobs. We can be reached on our website, michaelandnell.com. Here's our song, Boss Called a Meeting. So we had to go Said they're moving the plant to Mexico We all heard the rumors Now we know They're moving the plant to Mexico All I've ever known is the blue-collar life This union job fed my kids and my wife I gave them my muscle Gave them my brain this runaway train Losing my job Never felt so low They're moving the plant To Mexico How am I gonna pay All the money I owe They're moving the plant To Mexico The Mexicans, they gotta eat They're just like us Taking the heat We're all getting burned That's the way it feels While billionaires in easy chairs Make these deals Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio They're moving the plants to Mexico What'll I do? Oh. 
promises are all for show. They're moving the plant to Mexico. Hey, this is Lena from the Work Stoppage Podcast. We're a proud part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, more than 200 labor radio and podcast shows across the country and around the world. The Labor Radio Podcast Network, where the people speak. Find us at laborradionetwork.org. In early 20th century Philadelphia, black and white dock workers defied segregation and racism, organized themselves, and took action to win better pay and conditions. One of them, Ben Fletcher, became one of the most important labor activists in the United States. Feared by employers, surveilled by the FBI, thrown in jail, and then largely forgotten until recently. This is Working Class History. Inspiration through the workers' blood shall run There can be no greater power anywhere beneath the sun Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one But the union makes us strong Solidarity forever Solidarity. I am from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania The city of brotherly love while that might sound facetious, it is a fact, nevertheless, that a little more unity has prevailed there during the present maelstrom of labor oppression than in most cities. These were Ben's words, penned in January 1920 from inside Leavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas, and sent to one Athelia Campbell of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. His words are read by Alki, a wobbly historian, retail worker, and YouTuber. The IWW is very strongly represented in the marine transportation industry of Philadelphia, we have about 7,000 longshoremen and seamen there. Like yourself, I suppose I was born a rebel, though I have had varied experiences, some which would have caused me to ally myself with the employing class if I could have forgotten the place from which I sprung. While I do not countenance against the working class striking at the ballot box, I am firmly convinced that foremost and historical mission of labor is to organize as a class, industrially train and develop our own technicians, scientific men and women, and thereby prepare ourselves to successfully continue the operation of industry when capitalist society dies will it be of dry rot. Of course, any political gain, redress, or concession that we can secure is the meanwhile and should not be ignored. And so political unity follows industry unity, being its shadow. We go marching onward to certain victory. We are living in stirring times. Given Fletcher's importance, people may ask why he's been forgotten. This question is addressed by Robin D.G. Kelly, who wrote the foreword for an excellent recent book, Ben Fletcher, The Life and Times of a Black Wobbly. And Robin Kelly's essay is very interesting in that he also talks about how essentially the left has been whitewashed. Um, and that word is really a good word in this context because what it means is non-white people have been eliminated from or made invisible to. Whereas in fact, in, during the 19-teens and 20s and then ever since, African-Americans, um, other black people and other people of color have been instrumental to the communist movement, the sort of syndicalist, anarchist movement and other movements on the left. This is Peter Cole, professor of history at Western Illinois University and author of the aforementioned book on Fletcher. So Ben Fletcher is uh, the most important African-American who was ever in the IWW and one of the most important black labor leaders and really black leftists in American history. But he's almost entirely unknown, even among those who know a lot about the history of American labor, the history of American radicalism, forgetting about the history of worldwide labor and radicalism. Uh, but Fletcher is wildly unknown, yeah? Um, but I'm suggesting, I have suggested, that that's a mistake for those of us who are interested in capitalism and the struggle against it, but also racial capitalism, that's sort of that these twin concepts that sort of are really foundational and in constant conversation and you can't really separate them. Well, let us sort of dig deep into why it would be that an African-American, a working class man from Philadelphia, became a wobbly and then how he helped to lead really the most successful interracial union of his time. So, who was Ben Fletcher, and where did he come from? 
So Ben Fletcher was born Benjamin Harrison Fletcher. At that time, 1890, the president of the United States was a man named Benjamin Harrison, who was a white man like every president except one, and uh, was a Republican. For those of us who know our U.S. history well and political history, since Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party was the quote-unquote party that freed the slaves, which is correct, if a bit general, most Every single African-American was a Republican, and so Fletcher was named after the Republican president at the moment. That's actually normal. Fletcher's parents were both migrants from uh, the South, from Virginia, his mother from Virginia or maybe Maryland, his father from the eastern shore of Virginia. Pete has been unable to find conclusive proof one way or the other, but given their location and the time, it's most likely that both of Fletcher's parents were born into enslavement. Ben Fletcher was born in Philadelphia in 1890. His mother lost several children at birth, and his mother died um, when he was in his teens. And they moved around a lot, like typical working class or poor people, multiple apartments that they rented. Uh, but Fletcher, by around 1910, 20 years old, was a working man, never graduated high school, which would have been normal at that time. And That's sort of when we can pick him up. Other than that, it's just a little tidbits from census records. But in 1910 around, he joins the Industrial Workers of the World. He also joins around that time the Socialist Party of the United States, led by Eugene Debs. And uh, why is actually a sort of a fascinating question, which we can guess at, perhaps in an educated way, but not for sure, because he never actually makes clear why or when, precisely 1910, 1911, The IWW was a union unlike any other at that time. Founded in 1905, unlike nearly all other unions in the US, it sought to organize all workers, regardless of race, nationality, gender, craft or industry, into one big union. To fight for better conditions now, and to take over society and build a new world, run by workers for workers. Debs was one of the founders of the IWW who also served as the presidential candidate for the Socialist Party, receiving, at its peak, over 900,000 votes, about 6% of the total. Although Debs didn't actually put too much stock in electoralism or leaders in general, believing it much more important for workers to organize themselves. In one of his famous quotations, he declared that he was, quote, not a labor leader, end quote, and said that, quote, I would not be a Moses to lead you into the promised land, for someone would lead you out again, end quote. But back to Fletcher. We know he's working manual labor jobs, including on the waterfront in Philadelphia, which was one of the largest and busiest ports in the country in that time, and Philadelphia, the third largest city in the country at that time, and had the largest African-American population outside of the South at that time, and also has a long history of being a large, quote-unquote, free black community going back to the 18th century. And so Fletcher is a part of this urban black milieu, but he wouldn't have lived in an all-black neighborhood, although people clustered together. In South Philadelphia, which is where he lived for most of his life, there were many, many Italians, immigrants, many, many East European Jewish immigrants, many Irish immigrants, as well as maybe second and third generation Irish Americans, some Poles, some Lithuanians, Anglo-Americans. And so it was, Philadelphia is actually pretty physically small. And so it would have been a very diverse area. And even street by street, according to census records, he lived in places where on the same block as he lived were people different than him. In other words, it was not racially segregated in the way it later came to be. Um, and he would have been able to even walk to the waterfront, right? Like, uh, because it's a small city and because you could save five or 10 cents by walking a mile or two instead of taking the streetcar, um, he would have very likely walked to the Delaware River, which was the main river on the east side of the city. The other side of the Delaware is New Jersey. And uh, he would have lived and worked. And along the way, he um, joined the IWW, uh, joined the socialists, and a few years later helped found Uh, the union, uh, the branch of the IWW that I sort of focus upon. So that was Fletcher's life, which would have been a very typical life of a black Philadelphian at that time. Of course, the experience of black residents would always be substantially different from that of white residents. They definitely suffered from racism. Uh, most jobs were simply denied to black people. Uh, most employers simply didn't hire black men or women for them. And the famous African-American intellectual An activist, W.E.B. Du Bois, first book was actually a, called The Philadelphia Negro, 
published in the 1890s. And um, he basically argued that the, the, the number one factor that defines the experience of black people in Philadelphia was racism. And so Fletcher would have, that would have been his milieu in which he grew up in. Soon after joining the IWW, scraps of information about Fletcher started to appear in the union's press. So Ben Fletcher was already in the IWW no later than 1911, and he shows up in 1911 and 1912, and then in early 1913 in IWW publications. One of them is called Solidarity, right? Another is called The Industrial Worker. So that we know that Fletcher was already in the IWW and already was an activist, that he's named by others who are writing reports about what's going down in Philadelphia, that actually he wrote several short pieces for IWW publications that came out nationally or were read nationally and even internationally. And we know he was considered to be a really great speaker. Um, one of the first documents about Ben Fletcher is one of his fellow workers, as Wobblies refer to each other, uh, as being a sort of a dynamic speaker. And he very likely was among the very few African-Americans in Philadelphia who were in the IWW, although we don't really have demographic information on their membership. We generally know that there weren't many black people in the Wobblies at that time. And we also know, like I said, that he was a longshoreman, um, or at least some of the time that you could go down to the waterfront on the Delaware or to the west on the Schuylkill River. And if you were a man, and this time it was an all-male occupation, and if you were um, willing to work hard physically, manual labor, that was dangerous, and actually also or if you're willing to sort of accept low wages, but if you had nothing better, there were thousands and thousands of men, immigrants, migrants, local people who would have basically seen to pick up jobs where even though you don't have skills, you might have enough labor and uh, savvy to sort of lift and load cargo in and out of ships. The first significant industrial action which is recorded Fletcher took part in began in 1913. And so in May of 1913, dock workers in Philadelphia go on strike. They go on strike because they need or want to raise. Uh, they also have other demands, but as in the majority of cases, strikes primary demand was usually about making more money. We know that um, before the strike that there was not a chapter of the IWW representing dock workers. There were already wobbly locals in the city of Philadelphia, but in other industries. The largest industry actually in Philadelphia is textiles. Lots of people worked in textile factories in Philadelphia and elsewhere in the Northeast, like New York and Massachusetts, but these were segregated and excluded black workers. So black workers had to seek employment in other industries, like on the docks. And so African-Americans work on the waterfront. About a third of dock workers in, in Philadelphia in that era were black. Maybe a third were Irish and or Irish-American. And maybe about a third were other sorts of European immigrants, but particularly Polish and Lithuanian people, some of those who were Jews. And so May 1913, workers go on strike. That strike shuts down the waterfront, meaning that ships that are um, in the Delaware River are stuck, right? They're not going to get loaded or unloaded for several weeks. And we know that in the midst of that strike, the IWW and representatives of the American Federation of Labor, which has a dock worker union as well, called the International Longshoremen's Association, ILA, both apparently show up to try to convince strikers to join their union, and then for the, that union to lead that strike. Now, uh, the AFL's dock worker union, the ILA, actually represents workers in most every other port in the country. Not necessarily all the workers, but they are present. Now, while the IWW had dock worker members in Canada, as we talk about in our episode 52, the union didn't have any dock worker members in the US at this time. However, in the middle of this strike in May 1913, Workers who are on strike, there was approximately 4,000 of them, voted to affiliate with the IWW and then were given a charter, right? And they become known as Local 8. Fletcher is actually present, but he's not named as a leader. Uh, when we look at, uh, because the strike was so important to the local economy, the local newspapers covered the strike every day. And we also have other sorts of documentation. But um, in the aftermath of this two-week strike, workers win. Employers concede to the demands of the workers, which is to grant a raise, but also to actually not discriminate against hiring strikers or union members. And we know that by the end of the strike, that the Employers Association was negotiating with Local 8 
and that the Local 8 Negotiating Committee intentionally had representatives of every ethnic group that had significant numbers on the waterfront. So from their inception, this diverse group of strikers chose to affiliate with the IWW, which was this radical anti-capitalist militant union. And we know this union was anti-racist. If we just read their constitution, they make it literally the first article one is that no one will be denied membership based on race, creed, or color. We know that Fletcher is there. It's very reasonable to conclude that Fletcher was crucial to convincing those 1,500 or so black people that the IWW was legit. The ILA in other ports often does not organize African-Americans or puts them in all black locals and, and puts white people in a separate segregated local. And we know that the strike wins, grants a raise. And then we know that the IWW Local 8 immediately pushes to integrate the gangs, i.e. the workplaces on the waterfront. Before the strike, as was the case in most American workplaces, jobs, but also work within job sites was often segregated by race, ethnicity, and gender. And so there would have been an Irish gang, a Polish gang, an Italian gang, etc. And there would definitely have been a separate black gangs. Employers in the US would frequently encourage racial and ethnic divisions in their workforce and use this to discourage organization. And then they would use workers of different ethnicities to break each other's strikes. So to try to avoid this happening, the IWW would attempt to break down ethnic and racial divisions within the workforce. The Wobblies, Local 8, immediately says, we are going to integrate our gangs, which is incredibly radical and incredibly unusual for the United States in 1913. And we know that Fletcher immediately is being sort of touted before, but also after this moment, as being the leader of Local 8. Very quickly, Local 8 doesn't just, in other words, say that they believe in racial equality. Very quickly, Local 8 demonstrates through its policies, including pushing employers to sort of change how they do their work, this sort of integration. This would, of course, be 50 years before the Civil Rights Act of 1964 ended legal segregation based on race in the United States. And many unions also were dragging their feet on racial equality both in the 19-teens and for decades after. Right? And so very quickly we see Local 8 demonstrating power, demonstrating some material gains for the members, but also inserting this other matter into the conversation, you might say, even though it wasn't required by anyone, they just pushed this issue because it seemed that the IWW generally and Local 8 particularly put this front and center. And that Fletcher was immediately the most prominent African-American and, and for that matter, actually the most prominent member of Local 8 in the entire IWW. In addition to dockers, boatmen joined Local 8 as well. Boatmen are basically responsible for getting boats and safely connecting them to moorings in the docks. You're listening to the Labor Heritage Power Hour on WPFW 89.3 FM, your station for jazz and justice, revolutionary radio for revolutionary times. Back now to the Working Class History Podcast, fascinating story of Ben Fletcher, one of the most important black labor leaders in American history, and also one of the most unknown. Going back to the um, 1800s, African-Americans had often worked in the maritime industries of Philadelphia. It's really a port city, even though it's on a river as opposed to on an ocean, right? It's about 100 miles downriver from Philadelphia to get out to the Chesapeake Bay. But even in the mid-1800s, there's a lot of racial tensions in the city of Philadelphia, in particular between working-class Irish and working-class African-Americans, including multiple different incidents before the Civil War of violence in which Irish and Irish-Americans perpetrate violence against black people including in waterfront jobs, because those jobs are valuable. Even though they pay badly, they pay better than nothing. And so there's a long history, actually, going back into the 1840s, at least, of racial tensions between working class blacks and working class Irish. And there's simultaneously persecution of Irish immigrants by the Anglo-American majority, including in Philadelphia. In fact, the worst, the, the deadliest riot in Philadelphia before the Civil War was uh, one in which Protestant Philadelphians killed 20 Irish Catholic Philadelphians in 1844. And so what we've got is a city that's 
rife with tensions, right? And simultaneously, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, a major increase in immigration to the United States, including port cities like Philadelphia. So um, there's simultaneously an increasingly diverse local population in a country where racism is the norm, but also xenophobia, where immigrants um, are often sort of treated hostily by Americans, even though immigration is quote unquote open and generally speaking, employers love immigration for two reasons. One, it increases the population numbers. A larger labor supply means you can pay workers less. And two, employers time and time again in Philadelphia and other cities would play different ethnic and racial groups off of each other, right? And so we see this actually repeatedly during strikes that the local eight pulls off where workers are ethnically and racially diverse and employers will try to make a pitch to one group say the Irish, say the Italians or the Poles, in order to sort of peel them off, right? In other words, using ethnicity and race as a wedge to weaken workers. Now, if you're clever, you think to yourself, I'm smarter than the boss. I know that they're going to do this. Unfortunately, even though you might know it, the prejudices are not just coming from the top down, not just from the elite. Unfortunately, working class people also have some prejudices. And so Local 8, from its inception, We'll have to struggle with this issue, right? Um, how to sort of overcome the mainstream racism and xenophobia in Philadelphia and across the country. Generally speaking, the IWW is committed to doing so, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's easy. That's never not an issue. And in the later, after World War One, in fact, racism will re-emerge in the country, but also on the Philadelphia waterfront. That's a bit later, right? Um, but uh, we're mindful that it's, there's people like Fletcher who are sort of crucial to sort of keeping this together. And there's lots of evidence, including in my book, of how Fletcher talked, you know, that he was giving talks all the time um, and that he was considered to be very good at appealing to workers, not just black workers, to explain the logic, right, of being interracial and that essentially racism weakens workers and therefore disempowers them. But it's really essential to the whole story. I'm mindful that in 2020, Racism and diversity continue to be divisive issues, right? Um, including among unions and working people. To me, constantly, the lessons of the 19 teens and Ben Fletcher's book seem to resonate um, with people a century on. After the first big dispute, Local 8 really got busy trying to organize on the docks. And they did so in a democratic way, under the control of the workers themselves. After Local Aid is established, Fletcher is not the only leader, and the IWW nationally and as well as locally was committed to democracy. So that meant that you could only be elected for one year at a time, and you never were paid more than anyone who worked in the industry that you toiled in. And so these organizers, like really most members of the IWW, are true believers in the cause, right? Everybody who's a member is sort of an activist, a bit less so if you're just uh, in Local Aid. Once the union is established, if you want to work on the waterfront, you have to actually be a member of Local 8. And one of the ways that Local 8 organized is fascinating. It's not unique to them by any means. You know, after the Local 8 got established, they did a bunch of things to the benefit of workers. One of the things they did is they radically changed the hiring process. Before Local 8, the system was nicknamed the shape-up. So that if you wanted a job, you'd go down to maybe the pier. In some cases, in some port cities, there might be specific locations where workers who wanted to get hired would be picked by the boss, right? Or hiring bosses, plural. And, you know, there could be 200 people who show up for 40 jobs. How does the boss pick? Well, the boss picks who they like, who they know, uh, who's among the same ethnic group same racial group, the same religious group, who is willing to pay a bribe or a kickback to the hiring boss, et cetera, right? And so in other words, from the jump, you see your fellow workers as rivals as opposed to friends. Local 8 obliterates the shape up. Dock workers hated the shape up. Everybody hated the shape up. If you were a worker, um, there was just nothing you could do about it. However, once Local 8 gets established, the system changes. Now you have to call the local aid hall. Telephones already existed, right? So you call the hall and you say, I want 40 guys to come down to Pier 20 tomorrow to load coal. And local aid picks members who are in good standing to sort of go down to the hall. And they also, of course, would pick a diverse workforce to do that. They would issue buttons on a monthly basis if you paid your dues. 
if you didn't pay your dues, which were very low, but nevertheless, you had to pay them, then you got a new button, January 1914, local eight. That way also, because there's thousands of guys who work in the waterfront, you don't know everybody, you have to, you look around and you make sure that everybody in your group has your button. If not, you're not a, a loyal member. Well, the boss, of course, doesn't give a crap, right? Yeah, who's paid up and who's not. Local eight members would constantly be enforcing basically their own ranks. And they would tell the bosses, you can't be hiring people otherwise. They have to be wobblies. In true IWW fashion, if bosses didn't do what the workers wanted, the union would respond not by filing a grievance, but by taking direct action on the job. Famously, in the story, uh, one interview that was done with a black dock worker named Abraham Moses, right? He said, well, you know what the local eight would do if um, the boss tried to hire non-Wobblies? They'd wait a few hours into the shift. And then in the middle of a shift, without announcing to the boss, they would basically put some cargo in slings and pull up uh, the ropes, yeah, the lines, and sort of cut the ropes or um, attach them and leave all this cargo hanging in the air and walk off the ships and say, until you are willing to basically do what we tell you to do, then we're not going to work. And, well, the boss is uh, sort of faced with a situation. You either listen to the workers and get your work done or you're stuck, right? And in the industry of shipping where time is money, that's a very powerful tactic, right? And so the Wobblies, not just in Philadelphia by any means, but on the waterfronts, would use these direct action tactics, sometimes nicknamed quick strikes or quickie strikes, where they would be able to sort of prove their power to the bosses, and the bosses would therefore basically back off, right? And we know that the bosses hated the IWW, as they did everywhere, but we also know that they continued to basically play with the Wobblies because Wobblies had enough power to basically maintain their ranks, but also sort of impose their will to some extent on employers. We also know that Fletcher was instrumental to this in not just Philadelphia. In addition to organizing on the docks where he worked, Fletcher also traveled around the country for the IWW, public speaking and organizing. Thanks to his recollections, as well as um, documentary evidence in Wobbly newspapers, as well as the federal government spies, he was regularly sent up and down the Atlantic coast. So he was in Norfolk, Virginia, a major port, Baltimore, New York City occasionally, Providence, Rhode Island, not a huge port, but nevertheless, southern New England, and Boston. Fletcher was dispatched from 1913, really 1912 through 1917, on a regular basis, he would um, travel up and down the coast, probably by rail, but maybe by ship, to organize more dock workers and more black workers specifically. Um, so for example, in Providence, Rhode Island, interesting as those of us who know sort of Southern New England, there's a lot of Portuguese, more Portuguese in that part of the U.S. than other places. And some of those Portuguese people are of African descent, especially those who are from Cape Verde and the Azores. And racism being racism, right? Um, black people who are black Portuguese were limited job opportunities. A lot of those people in Rhode Island also worked on the waterfront. Fletcher sent up there, right, to essentially prove, because it's one thing for the Wabis to say that we believe in racial equality, but unlike the ILA or most labor unions at that time, they could actually demonstrate through Philadelphia and often Fletcher that the Wobblies are committed to um, black inclusion and black equality. And so Fletcher is really the considered to be not the best, I wouldn't say that, but, you know, a premier organizer, right? Um, and was trying to constantly overcome the ethnic and racial and national divisions that plagued the American working class that also was the case in Baltimore, where Fletcher was repeatedly sent, where there was a significant black population, but also Irish and Poles who didn't necessarily get along with each other. Typically, wobbly speaking engagements would involve setting up a pitch on a street corner and just starting to speak to people, normally after having advertised the meeting at that particular spot. The IWW waged fierce battles for the right to free speech in public places, which we spoke about in our episode six. Sometimes, however, Fletcher's meetings could get a bit hairy. In early 1917, he's in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, Norfolk, of course, is in the south. 
and uh, in the so-called Jim Crow South, right? And so more overtly racist and more actually racist perhaps than Pennsylvania. Fletcher, according to reports, stories he tells, he's giving a speech one day, say in early 1917 in Norfolk, where uh, hecklers, uh, white hecklers, who might be just provocateurs of a sort, um, start asking him provocative questions about his opinion about interracial sex, which is sort of a no-go zone and actually illegal for black and white people to marry in the state of Virginia. That was actually the famous 1967 Loving v. Virginia Supreme Court case that overturned bans against mixed-race marriage. Fletcher happened to be a very dark-skinned black man which is to say that he probably had less white blood in him than many other African-Americans who probably were lighter skinned due to the rape of black women who had been enslaved by their white masters. And so that all comes around because when this heckler asks Fletcher's opinion about what do you think about interracial marriage, he responded um, in his brief explanation. He said something to the effect of, well, I'm about the darkest guy in this room around here. It was open air. And that uh, turning it back on him, pointing out and going, don't ask me about interracial marriage. White men are the ones who, of course, are sort of the ones engaged in in interracial sex all the time, even if it's against the will of black women. Well, it might have been that sort of response, or it might have been the fact that he was a radical labor organizer. But according to Fletcher, he heard that he was threatened with a lynching, um, that he might be killed. And so friends of his in Norfolk quickly got him aboard a ship to Boston. And so in early 1917, he ends up living in Boston and he starts to organize there. Later that year, Fletcher was up in Providence, Rhode Island. He wrote a brief report of goings on there for an IWW journal. In the port of Providence, Rhode Island, the marine transport workers are getting ready to lock out the scabs and riffraff hereabouts in their second attempt to unionize the port in the IWW. They are determined to win for themselves a better life, working conditions, and more job control, regardless of whether the costs be great or small. That was from the Working Class History podcast, which originates in the UK. Part two of the Ben Fletcher episode is available now wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Working Class History, or you can go to workingclasshistory.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1937. That was the day with whistles blowing, the call to strike could be heard through the aisles of Woolworth in downtown Detroit. 108 saleswomen walked away from their workstations and cash registers. The eight-day sit-down had begun. The women saw from the experience in Flint that sit-down strikes were effective. They evicted management, barricaded the doors, and found 200 or so customers still inside the store wanting to join them. The strikers issued their demands. A 10-cent-an-hour raise, an eight-hour workday, union recognition and a union hiring hall, free uniforms and laundering, and more. Kresge department stores immediately gave their workers a raise in order to prevent similar stoppages. The striking women at Woolworth made themselves comfortable and the sit-down soon spread to a second store. Leaders from Local 705 of the Hotel Employees and Restaurant Employees Union threatened a nationwide strike if demands were not met. Union cooks provided meals and union musicians provided entertainment. Hotel workers from across the city picketed in front of the store in a show of solidarity. After seven days, Woolworth's management caved and agreed to most of the strikers' demands. High turnover in the workforce would undo contract gains at area Woolworth stores soon after the sit-down. But the victory electrified retail workers across the country. The sit-down spread to retailers in St. Louis, New York, San Francisco, Minnesota, and Washington. In three strikes, miners, musicians, sales girls, and the fighting spirit of labor's last century, Dana Frank notes that, quote, over 60 years later, unions today in department stores all over the country owe their existence in part to the Woolworth strike. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Heritage Power Hour. If you've got suggestions for guests or topics for future shows, we'd love to hear them. Drop us a note at info at laborheritage.org. 
The Labor Heritage Power Hour is a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. Today's show is produced by me, Chris Garlock. And engineered by Mike Nacella and Kalia Chapman. Right here on WPFW 89.3 FM, your station for jazz and justice. Music today included Dusky Stevedore by Louis Armstrong. And of course, Boss Called a Meeting by Michael and Nell. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Labor Heritage Power Hour. The art and soul of the American labor movement. We'll see you next week. He's just a Stevie Doe, down on the Spanish show. Working and singing a song, he's basket eyes wet. Doesn't mind the sweat, scuffling all day long. Oh, baby, see his ragtime shuffling gaze. Happy cause he's handling brain. Love is heavy for the dust. From WPFW News in Washington, I'm Sue Goodwin. Here are some headlines. Gaza's health ministry said today that the number of Palestinians killed in the war has now surpassed 30,000. Thousands more remain unaccounted for, either missing under the rubble, buried hastily in side streets, or decomposing in areas that can't be safely reached. The figures which the World Health Organization says are reliable, do not break down the numbers between civilian deaths and fighters belonging to Hamas and other militant groups. But compared with previous UN data from past Gaza conflicts, the WHO said the current figures, quote, clearly show an increasing number of civilians being killed with a higher proportion of children and women fatalities, close quote. This announcement comes the same day more than 100 Palestinians in Gaza City were killed while trying to get critical humanitarian aid, according to officials in Gaza, who described the incident as a massacre after Israeli forces opened fire on the civilians. Nearly 700 people have also been injured, dozens of them in critical condition. Israel is facing mounting pressure globally to halt the conflict, but its campaign in Gaza still has the support of the United States, its key ally and largest supplier of military aid. The U.S. proposed a temporary ceasefire at the United Nations earlier this month, but has vetoed calls for an immediate halt in the conflict. In domestic news, Congress is expected to vote today on a one-week stopgap measure that would extend government funding and prevent a partial shutdown ahead of a Friday night deadline. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he hopes the Senate will be able to pass the short-term funding extension tonight after the House advances the legislation this afternoon. Congressional leaders agreed to the funding deal last night to give lawmakers more time to finalize annual spending bills. The agreement would move the funding deadline for six government agencies from March 1st to March 8th and extend the rest to March 22nd. Meanwhile, high-level disagreements over policy issues remain. House Speaker Mike Johnson is facing immense pressure from members of the House Freedom Caucus to include dozens of policy writers that would never pass in the Democratic-controlled Senate. The Supreme Court said yesterday it will review former President Donald Trump's claim that he is immune from federal charges related to interfering in the 2020 presidential election. The court will hear oral arguments in the case in late April, but it remains unclear whether a trial would take place before the November election. The fundamental issue in this case is whether presidents are fully immune from prosecution over anything they did in office, even after they've left. It's been described as one of the most profound questions of presidential power the court has ever had to answer. A lower court, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, rejected Trump's claims of immunity, ruling that he could be prosecuted for his actions on January 6th. 
In related news, an Illinois state judge barred Trump from appearing on the Illinois Republican presidential primary ballot because of his role in the Capitol insurrection. Advocates say that bars him from serving as president again because a section of the 14th Amendment enacted after the Civil War blocks people from office who engaged in an insurrection after previously promising to support the Constitution. The ruling, however, was immediately put on hold pending an expected appeal to the state's highest court. In weather today, it is 41 degrees and 